0: All right, thank you for sharing. So we've been working through a book. What's that book? Romans, Romans. very good. And what chapter are we on? Don't look at the screen, don't peek. <laughs> it's chapter 12. We're in chapter 12 today. It is good to be with you. I'm excited to get in chapter 12. This is some of my favorite scripture in the Bible, period. Um, and so I don't think I've ever taught through Romans chapter 12 before, but I'm excited to do so. This is it's just kind of one of those, I guess, passage of scripture that just has like so much power and magnitude uh and and it, i think that just kind of i do so much of paul's heart here in this chapter he's writing to this early church in rome and you can kind of like picture maybe in your mind what it would be like for him in such a sense that he just cares so deeply for them he loves them so much he's got this deep concern for them But he wants to teach them. He wants them to be empowered. He wants them to have this radical relationship with the Lord and to understand their position well. And so this chapter begins to kind of bring that out. And so today, we probably won't even get, well, we definitely won't. We're not going to get past verse 1, really, right? We're just going to get stuck in verse 1. I'll I'll read verse 1 and verse 2, and then we're just going to kind of camp there for a little while. I hope that's okay. I know it's kind of weird. Some weeks we're blasting through like a whole chapter and then here we are going through like, I don't know, 20 some words. Um, but I think, think it's, it's good sometimes to slow ourselves down and to meditate on the word of God. And um, this would be one of those particular passages that I think deserves a little bit more time. So this is Paul. Reminder, he's writing to the early church in Rome. And he starts off, he starts off chapter 12 by saying, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy... To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He says, holy and pleasing to God. And then he describes, this is your true and proper worship. Can you say that with me? This is your true and proper worship. He continues into verse 2, which we'll talk more about next week. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and to prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's stop. Let's pray. God, we love your word. We long to hear from you. God, I pray that as we kind of uncover this passage of scripture here, God, that you would kind of lift any veil or anything that's in the way, any distraction might be put to the side so we can hear directly from you, that we could capture that we could capture your heart in this, Lord. God, I pray that this morning we'd be convicted by your word. God, that we would be more than just readers of your word, but doers of your word. We long to grow. We long to be disciples. God, I pray that we would be kind of impacted by your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What great verses are—these not are pretty amazing, aren't they, hey? Right? Who agrees this some of the best scripture out there? I know it's all good, but this is some of the most this is so powerful, right? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now I don't know about you, but I was about maybe four or five years old. I was a young child when I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior. Who can remember the day that you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? See, I can't necessarily remember that day because I was so young. It was just a part of who I was. I kind of remember actually finding out that not everyone was a Christian. And that was, that was kind of news to me, right? I even remember at one point, I, was, I grew up in a pretty charismatic church. I kind of thought that everyone had two languages, right? I thought everyone spoke in tongues, right? And I was like, oh, really? I thought that that's just what happened, right? And so it was like a young age for me when I, when I got to know Jesus as my savior. And then when I was 16 years old, and I've talked a little bit about this, that was kind of when I first began to hear God's call and his voice on my life. And he began to kind of explain to me that there was a purpose for my life in ministry. And that was really neat. And so it began to change some of, some of my life in that season of knowing that I was called. But it wasn't until le- years later, maybe 21 years old, before I got around to inviting him to be my Lord. And this is a phenomena that I believe can kind of happen with many Christians. We come to a place in our lives where we recognize our need for a Savior we recognize our sin. We know that our sin has separated us from God and we make the choice to do something about it. We say, I need a savior. And Jesus, I invite you into my heart to be my savior, right? Most of you raised your hand. You remember the day. And that's good. That's great. That's wonderful. It's amazing. But many times in the case of, as in the case of myself and maybe for some of you as well, there's a period of time where we live that life of Jesus is Savior, but we've not yet invited him to be the Lord of our lives. Do you know what I mean? You see that there's like a little bit of a difference? We've not yet invited him to be the Lord of our lives, meaning that we've not yet given him kind of the freedom in our lives to call the shots, right? In other words, we've still got our hands firmly on the steering wheel. I've used that illustration a lot we've got our hands firmly on the steering wheel of our own lives. And that was my life between the ages of about four or five all the way till being about 21 years old. I prayed, but I didn't necessarily pray for direction, right? I didn't pray for wisdom. I didn't pray over my life decisions. What I, what I usually would do is in the last about 15 seconds of the day, I would pray to God and I would thank him. And it was a genuine prayer. I would thank him that I was saved, I don't know about you, but I was so captivated at a very young age that God would send his son to die on the cross for my sins. That meant something to me. And I I grasped that, and I was thankful, so thankful. But at just 10, 15 seconds before I went to sleep, I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But I was just thankful. That was kind of the extent of it. It didn't move into anything else, right? It was just a thank you prayer. Thank you for dying for me on the cross, but when it comes to my life, I was actually totally in charge, or at least I thought I was. And I never really prayed about my decisions and so forth because, well, Daniel was in charge. And that was just kind of the way that it was. And it took quite a bit of time, well into my adult years, to bring me to this place of recognizing that there was a good reason. Can you say that word with me? Reason. There was a good reason for me to make God my Lord. I didn't understand the reason before. I knew there was a reason for him to be my savior. That was obvious for me, but I didn't really have any reason to make him Lord because things were going okay. Things were going all right. It seemed fine. It seemed dandy. And I was just kind of cruising through life. Who's ever just been cruising through life and you don't really need God? Can you relate with that statement at all? I know it's not something that we're shooting our hands up for, right? But that was me, right? it took me some time before eventually I began the process of bending my knee and declaring him to be worthy of being Lord of my life. And by the way, that process continues to this day. It's not like a once and done invitation that we give to the Lord to be Lord of our lives. It has, but it has to begin at some point. Right? There has to be a starting point when we say, I need you to be Lord of life my life. And I don't think that this isn't, I don't think this is automatic when you invite Jesus to be your savior. I think there's a separation. I think that there's something different between accepting Jesus to be your savior and declaring him Lord over your life. It changes your whole posture before God. Usually we need something to happen or at least this has been my observation. Usually we need something to happen in our lives to kind of open our eyes. And for me that was that kind of was my continual falling into sinful behavior. Who can relate? Right? This continual getting stuck, this continually being just, you know, bombarded with sinful be- behavior in my life and the shame that came with that kind of lifestyle. I realized that I was failing miserably. That's what it took in my life to show me that I was a really bad Lord, small L of my own life. Now for others, perhaps it might take something else to happen to sort of open your eyes. I don't know necessarily what it takes for you or what it's taken for others, but I have a feeling that many of you know what it was like when you had your eyes open to the fact that you were a really bad Lord of your life, small L, right? And perhaps maybe you're in this moment or this season of life where you feel as though your eyes are currently being opened in this chapter of your life. And you're realizing the need for him to be more than just your savior, but also the Lord of your life. And I wish that this could have happened by me just reading the Bible. Right? I wish that I could have just read the Bible and seen all the reasons that Scripture gives for making him Lord. I wish that I could have noticed and then kind of said to myself, well, wow, he deserves inevitably to be Lord of my life, so I'm going to make him Lord. I wish that's kind of how it went, but it took like a two-by-four across the head <laughs> for me to figure that out, <laughs> to get my attention, to really draw out of me this deception that I was somehow worthy of leading my own life. And calling the shots in my own life. And so what's interesting is there's actually plenty of scripture. There's plenty in the Bible that shows us that crowning Jesus as Lord of your life is a good thing to do. I mean, it's all over. But you know how it goes. We see them, but we don't hear them. Right? Or perhaps maybe you have heard it, but you didn't really hear it. It's kind of like when you're being explained the rules. Right? You heard them, but they just didn't. You didn't really hear them. You didn't absorb them. And there's these scriptures that I had heard, that I knew of. I'd had memorized some of them, but yet they hadn't penetrated my heart to the point of me saying, "I'm going to make you my Lord. I submit to you." We're happy making Him Savior, Jesus. I'm so thankful you're my Savior, but I'm going to live my life my way. It takes an act of the will to make Jesus your Savior. Can we agree on that? right? It definitely takes an act of the will to make Jesus your Savior, but it also takes an act of the will to make Jesus your Lord. right? You first have to realize that you need him as your Savior before you can make him your Savior. Then later, you also have to realize that you need him as your Lord before you can make him your Lord. We need to come to this place of recognition and say, I am. Need this? I need you, Lord. I want to show you a couple of verses uh, or passages that speak of this kind of act of the will. The first one is in First Peter, uh, chapter three, verse fifteen. Just the first part of your verse, Paul writes and he says, "But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord." Could you read that with me? "But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord." What a great verse! Who's he writing to? I'll tell you who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to unbelievers here. What does he say to Christians? He's like, in your hearts, make sure that Jesus is Lord. Make sure you've set him apart as Lord. And this message is to Christians. Isn't that amazing? Let me show you another one. James chapter four, verse seven. Again, the first part of your verse. He says, submit yourselves then to God. Say that with me. Submit yourselves then to God. Church, this is what it means to make him your Lord. It's an act of submission, submitting your will, submitting your wants, submitting your desires and your very life to him as Lord. And again, James is writing here to believers, not to unbelievers. And that's key to those believers. He says, submit yourselves then to God. So this means that there's biblical proof. There's biblical proof to show us that it's an act of the will that, that we as Christians here have to kind of go through in order to make him our savior and then to make him our lord it's an act of the will which leads me to ask the obvious question have you discovered a reason to make him lord and i'll pause on that for a moment because i think this is a question that we as christians need to be asking ourselves continually For some of you, you might be reading this and you're like, that's kind of the, oh, can we get a slide for that? Slide five. Have you discovered a reason to make him Lord? For some of us, this is maybe the first time that we've really kind of thought about that. Like, what's a reason? What's the reason I've decided to make him my Lord? And for some of us, we're like, I've embraced this reason so many times, Daniel. Here's my list. Doot, do do do. right? I'd encourage you to think this through on a regular basis. I know why I made him my savior. That's pretty obvious because I know about how sinful I am, right? I I learned pretty quickly the importance of him as my savior. In those 15 seconds before bed, that prayer was sincere. Thank you for being my savior. But at what point in your life, if yet, have you found a reason for making him your Lord, for discovering that you maybe can't do this on your own. So really think this through. Have you discovered a reason to make him Lord? See, I'm kind of assuming this morning that you have discovered a reason to make him your savior. But have you figured out why it's a good idea to make him the Lord of your life? Paul begins Romans chapter 12 by essentially appealing to us to do that very thing to make him Lord of our lives. And he's gonna use different words than I would to do it, and Paul usually does. I wouldn't have picked these words, but the words say it just the same. He begins by saying, first of all, he says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. Can you say that word urge with me? Urge, it's a fun word to say. The word urge means to try earnestly or persistently to persuade someone to do something. So Paul is telling you and I to listen to reason, right? He's like, listen closely to this reason and then make a choice. What is that choice? Well, he goes on to say, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's the choice. He's telling us, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to give your lives to Jesus completely, right? But he uses this sacrificial language to do that. This is an interesting use of sacrificial language here because it's much different than the sacrificial language that's used in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, when you brought a sacrifice to the Lord, what was it usually? And it's an animal, right? It could have been been a grain offering. It could have been a drink offering, but it was always something outside of yourself. It wasn't you that you brought as an offering. But in the New Testament, Paul says here, he's like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bring yourself. This is unique. Don't bring an animal. Don't bring food. Don't bring drink. Bring you and put yourself on the altar. Strange language, right? This is unique. This is different. Now, there's one thing, there's one kind of, one kind of interesting commonality between all the animals here, and that's just the most common sacrifice that were, were, were um, put on the altar previously. They all ended up dead, Right? <laughs> That was kind of the point of the sacrifice, right? They all ended up dead. Every single animal that was brought to the altar died. The animals that were laid on the altar sacrificially kind of stood as a stand in temporarily for the worshiper, and they were slain. But here in Romans, this is wildly different. See, you are now on the altar, but you're not at risk of dying. Isn't that interesting? In fact, you're very much alive on the altar to be able to live a life unto the Lord. The imagery here is unmistakable though. Paul is calling you and I to completely give our lives to Jesus, to surrender to God and say, I am yours, do with me as you will. But remember something that I said just a little bit ago, most people need a reason, say that word with me, reason. Most people need a reason to do that. I don't know if we talk about this enough. Most people need a reason to do that. And if you don't really feel like you have a reason, well, then you're probably not gonna do it, right? I mean, Paul can say all day long that he urges us to give our lives unto the Lord, to his total lordship. But if you don't see a reason to do that, you're gonna kind of go, okay, thanks, but no thanks, right? And then just kind of move on in life. In church, I've seen this happen, where people embrace the gospel, they embrace the good news, and they just don't see the reason. Sometimes they don't even see the reason to submit themselves to him as a savior. But I've seen Christians in many examples not see the reason to submit to him as Lord. And I'm sure that some of you have seen this too, perhaps many We hear all kinds of things in the word of God, but we don't necessarily always have a bucket to put it in. There's no place to really file that in our lives. Where do you file this challenge to give your life to Jesus? Well, it's got to be filed under the reason. Right? That's how we work. That's how we make decisions. That's how we kind of organize our life. There's a why behind pretty much everything that you do. Sometimes we're confused of the why. I was talking to Joanne earlier, and I was like, why was I walking down the stairs? <laughs> right? I, said, I don't know exactly why. There was a reason. It was probably a good one, right? But we do things for a reason. So where do you file this challenge to give your life to Jesus? You file it under that reason. So again, have you discovered a reason to make him Lord? If you haven't, take notice this morning, the author of the letter here of Romans, Paul, is gonna give us several reasons from the word of God. Look again with verse one for me. This is as far as we're gonna get today, right? Look at that word urge. The second word, or pardon me, not just the word urge, the second word we're gonna look at is therefore. Can you say that word with me? Therefore, right? He starts off by saying therefore. Now therefore is a connecting word, isn't it? right? It connects a current statement with past information, right? And the current statement is give your life to the Lord, right? Surrender to his Lordship in, other, in, in the words of offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Can you say that with me? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. But the previous thing that this new idea is being connected to is what? Well, it's the previous 11 chapters, Right, what Paul has been writing up to this point is now what's being kind of connected to this new thought here in Romans, right? So it's like chapter 1, 2, 3, all the way through 11. And then Paul's like, therefore, right, therefore, based on what was just said, right? It's a letter, It wasn't wasn't divided up into chapter one, two, three, four, right? The same way that I write a letter to someone, I don't divide it as one, two, three, four in chapters or something. Maybe you do. That's strange. Paul didn't do that, right? We did that. We broke the Bible up into verses and and, and chapters thereafter, which has been great. It's helpful for organizing and being able to find scripture uh, and organizing ideas and thoughts, but that's not how this letter was constructed. So when he says, therefore, he's talking about what he said prior, not just chapter 11 though the whole the whole of it therefore right when you see the word therefore you have to stop and ask yourself what is it therefore right he says give your lives to god offer your bodies as a living sacrifice do you remember some of the reasons that he brought up in the 11 chapters prior do you remember some of the teaching? Perhaps for some of you, there's like, yeah, chapter six really stood out to me. Or you like, chapter one is still ringing in my ears, right? And maybe you're joining us today and you missed some of the kind of all, all of those chapters and you're like, I don't know the reasons. So I'll tell you some of the reasons. I'll tell you some of the reasons here that he says that we should give our lives completely to the Lord. Here's a good reason. It says, because you're now free from the penalty of sin. It's a pretty good reason, right? Secondly, because you're free from the power of of sin right not just the penalty but also the power to control your life here's something else he said to us because you're now indwelt by the holy spirit right you should give your life to the lord because you're now sons and daughters by adoption i could probably stop there but i'll keep going you should also give your life to the lord because you're now eternally linked with christ how about this because you are the elect of god predestined to be conformed into the image of his son Or because you are beyond all possibility of condemnation. Remember that? Here's another one. Because no charge can be laid against you that God will entertain. And this. Because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can you read that last one with me? Because there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. See what Paul is saying. He's saying, in light of all of these statements that he's made through Romans chapters one all through all the way through eleven, Paul urges the early church in Rome to give their lives to God, to give their lives to Jesus, to surrender to Him, and he says, "Offer yourself as a living sacrifice." And then without missing a peak, Paul, or beat, Paul kind of goes on in this very verse to give us two more reasons as to why we should lay down our lives. And they're really important. The First one he says is it's holy and pleasing to God. Say that with me. It's holy and pleasing to God. And then the second thing he tells us is this is your true and proper worship. Say that with me. This is your true and proper worship. So what does it mean when Paul says, that laying down your life for God is holy and pleasing to God? That's an important question for us to ask, right? How interesting of him to describe it as such. Holy simply means set apart. It means it's special, right? Your life is special for a purpose. Let me say that again. Your life is special for a purpose. And when you give it to God, he says it's a holy thing, but it's also this, it's also pleasing. Cute. (laughs) It's also pleasing. Your life given to God is pleasing to God, meaning that it's acceptable, right? Before service here, we we're taking some time to do some pre-service prayer and Gwen used some of this language in her prayer about our, our, our sacrifice being acceptable to him. Your life is an acceptable sacrifice to God. And we don't necessarily have a great appreciation for what it means to offer up an acceptable sacrifice, until you read through the Old Testament, where sacrifice is talked about a lot, right? And, and you find out how people offered up unacceptable sacrifices, right? This starts way back in Genesis, all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, when Cain and Abel, do you remember? Cain and Abel had their, their, their offerings before the Lord, right? And, and, and when, when Cain and Abel kind of came before the Lord with their sacrifice, right, Abel's sacrifice was accepted. But then it says that Cain's was not accepted. And then as you read through the history of Israel, you'll find that many times throughout the course of their history where God said, I don't accept your sacrifices. And he would explain why. He said, because they, weren't, they were doing it as a religious practice, that their hearts weren't in it. They weren't truly worshiping God. They weren't living their lives for God. And therefore, their sacrifice was then unacceptable. Does that make any sense? Are you tracking with me a little bit? Right? So, when you understand what the Old Testament says about acceptable versus unacceptable sacrifice, the statement here in Romans gains a lot more meaning for you and I. When you offer yourself as a living sacrifice, it's holy. It's also acceptable, or if you will, pleasing to God. Why is it acceptable, though? What made it acceptable? You may be thinking, what about me is acceptable? What about me? is pleasing to God. Let me show you an explanation or guess an answer to that. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses four to five says, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Who's that? Jesus. It's Jesus. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And then those last three words, through Jesus Christ. Say those with me. Through Jesus Christ. Do you understand how important those three words are? The offering of yourself to God is acceptable to God because it's offered through Jesus Christ. And that means that's through his blood, through his sacrifice on the cross. We need to understand this. You need to understand that an unbeliever or somebody who has not received Christ as their Savior cannot offer themselves to God because their offering is unacceptable. It's unpleasing, apart from the cleansing work of Jesus on the cross. This matters. This isn't always preached. This isn't always taught. This isn't always believed, even in Christian circles, that we need to have this understanding that it is the blood of Jesus. That's what makes us acceptable. That's what makes us pleasing. It is not me, right? No matter how good John is before the Lord, he is just John. But after being cleansed by the blood of Jesus, well, he's not just John anymore. He's been cleansed he's purified, he's beautiful, he's wonderful. The Lord looks upon him as his son and loves him and sees him. I'm sorry, John. <laughs> as such. And not just John, who here has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. I don't think that we always think that through well enough as to what it really means to be cleansed, as what it means to be forgiven. That's... The pleasing part, that's the acceptable part. It's through Jesus Christ. Say that with me. Through Jesus Christ. It's not through Dennis's efforts, right? It's not through Jess's efforts or Gwen's efforts, Cornelia's efforts. This is not us. It's through Jesus Christ. You ever read any of the Old Testament and wondered why God was so picky with his sacrifices? Right, God told them when they would bring an animal before him, right that if the animal has any kind of deformity, if the animal has any blemish or spot or wound, he's like, "Don't offer that animal up as a sacrifice." right? You're like, why is he being so picky? Only offer an animal that is without spot or blemish. Why? Because only that is acceptable. Well, why is it acceptable? Because it's a picture. It's a picture of the kind of sacrifice that you and I would offer. Under the New Covenant, when through the blood of Jesus, Christ, we would ourselves offer. Do you understand now? Does it make a bit more sense? Right? You are offering yourself without spot, without blemish. They might say, "Wait a minute, Daniel, you don't know me. My life is full of spots. My life is full of blemishes. And I get that, to which I'd say, me too. But that's the way that I see myself, and that's the way you see yourself. But do you understand how God sees you? Remember how I was talking about John and how God sees him? God sees you very differently than you see yourself, and that is through Jesus Christ. Do you understand that he sees you as cleansed, that he sees you as innocent, that you've been acquitted in his sight and through Jesus' blood, you've now been purified. This is good news, right? And that's why you're acceptable and pleasing to God through Jesus Christ. I'm repeating myself because this is just so key. This is important and I really don't want you to miss it. Romans chapter 12 would not make a lot of sense if you didn't grasp this. But there's another reason that he gives here as to why you should do it. Make Jesus your Lord. He says, this is your true and proper worship. Say that with me. This is your true and proper worship. What's that all about, right? Maybe you have an idea or a guess. To offer yourself as a sacrifice is spiritual worship? I I think I have another passage that might help us out. It's John 4, verse 24. Remember when Jesus was meeting the woman at the well? right, the Samaritan woman by the well, and Jesus said to her, he says, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You remember that? I'll read, let me read that again. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So there must be a spiritual element, an aspect to our worship, or it's not genuine worship, Right? Worship is in the spirit. Say that with me. Worship is in the spirit. And we kind of go like, well, well that's, what's that all about? Paul tells us what it's all about. It's offering of yourself to give God yourself. He's waiting for you to give him permission to be Lord of your life. And when you do that, Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. I think this is amazing. This blows my mind. Think about all the things that we consider worship though, right? I went to church this morning and man, did we worship, right? Gateway has an identity for lifting the name of Jesus in praise. We can sing, we can shout, we can dance, we can clap, right? This would be a house that loves to worship God. Am I wrong? No, this this is that place. And one of many, thank God. What are we talking about when we say that we worshiped God though? I hope this is challenging. Perhaps we're talking about the worship team, right? And the talents that they have and the music that they play. Perhaps we're talking about specific lyrics and we'll say, oh, I really like when we sing that song. I really enjoy those lyrics. Those lyrics help me to worship God. I love those lyrics. For some people, it isn't worship unless you close your eyes, right? For others, it isn't worship unless you raise your hands or maybe it's just kind of one hand or maybe it's like this or maybe it's like... I don't know, we do all sorts of things, don't we, right? Some churches, it's not worship unless you get up and move around, right? Have you ever been in a church where they danced? Like they danced, right? I have. And as someone who doesn't dance, it's a little weird, but it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to some churches where you're not worshiping unless you shout. I mean, they take that, that scripture that says shout to the Lord very seriously, and they do that loudly, right? Some churches even hand out little percussion instruments, when you're like coming in and you're not worshiping the Lord unless you're playing those percussion instruments. And some of you are like, we're doing this wrong, (laughs) right? People come up with all kinds of stuff, hey? Be like, hey, if you don't fall down on the ground during the song service, well, you haven't worshiped God, right? You haven't burst into laughter, oh, you haven't worshiped God, right? Your body isn't shaking and moving, oh, you haven't worshiped God, right? And there's all these things that we've attached But I've only looked at one side of the equation. If we cross the bridge, some people haven't worshiped God unless they're in a quiet, dark place on their own. It's still. Some people haven't worshiped God unless they've sung a hymn, right? Some people haven't worshiped God unless they previously knew the lyrics to the song, right? Some people haven't worshiped God if they haven't taken communion. Some people haven't worshiped God if there wasn't candles present. Some people haven't worshiped God unless there was a cross present like a depiction of a cross. Guess what, church? None of that is worship. None of it. They're vehicles that we use to worship. Music is not worship. If it was, then Taylor Swift would be worshiping God, right? If it was, then the Super Bowl halftime show would be praise to God, right? Music is a vehicle that can be used for worship and a wonderful vehicle at that a beautiful one that we hold to dearly right you can come to church you can sing the songs you can raise your hands you can close your eyes you can shout you can dance you can jump and you can fall down on the ground and you have not worshiped God that can happen because worship at its core is spiritual It's not fleshly. It's not carnal. It's not something that you can hear. It's not something that you can touch. It's not something you can see. It happens in here. Are you with me? Are you following? And Paul tells you that your spiritual worship is when you invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life. I give myself to you. That is spiritual worship.